Every Sunday that we gather together, we go to the scriptures. Uh, we open the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. Uh, this week, our sermon text is going to be 1 John uh, 3, 11 through 24. And so before I read the text, would you uh, pray with me? Father, we come as needy people, needing to hear from you through your word. And so would you speak to us this morning in unique and particular ways from your scriptures. We pray and we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. First John 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk in deed, but in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Paul Ramsey. If I haven't met you yet, uh, welcome to Sojourn. I am one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you guys this morning. Uh, as it is every week, and it is wonderful to be gathered with almost all of our church, all in one place for a single gathering this morning. Thank you. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're glad that you guys are with us as well. Every now and then, actually, I would say every time I preach, um, I'm standing in the room listening to the scripture read, and I have this moment of insecurity wondering, oh my goodness, how are the comments that I have prepared going to even hold a candle to the words on the page or the words on the screen, as it were. Um, but the reassurance that I have, the, the assurance that I have is that while I am preaching, the Holy Spirit is preaching the better sermon. And so I just, I feel, I know Brandon just preached. Would you join me in a word of prayer as I ask the Lord to speak powerfully to us this morning? God, thank you so much for humbling me just now and reminding me that in this moment, um, we are in desperate need. Me, everyone gathered here, are in desperate need for you to speak clearly to us. We can't make sense of the words on this page, the words of Scripture without your help. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm so grateful that the pressure is off for me as I preach this word, because I trust that you are with us, that you will bring clarity, and I ask that you would do that for your glory and for our good, in Christ's name, amen. It's a joy to sit under the scriptures and to preach them uh, to you all. We're walking through a series here at Sojourn through the book of 1 John. As you just heard Brandon read, we're in 1 John chapter three, uh, and 1 John is a letter written by the apostle John, who is, uh, as a loving pastor, addressing for his readers this seismic shift in human history. 
that took place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who ushered in the kingdom of God, sent the Holy Spirit so that the kingdom of God could be expanded to the nations of the earth beyond the borders of Israel into all the world. And the early Christians, carrying this message of the kingdom of God that is expanding and filling the earth, were facing persecution from the outside and division from within. And so John, throughout this letter, is outlining a number of reminders and encouragements for these churches in crisis. And one thing is clearly John's main interest throughout this letter, certainly in our passage, and throughout his apostolic ministry. This is the Apostle John who wrote the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John, a couple of decades after the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written. And John tells us why he wrote his gospel explicitly. He says, I wrote this, I write these things, so that you may see and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And here, in this letter, we see more of the same. John is declaring the goodness, the glory, the grace of Jesus, and he's showing us how following Jesus changes everything. His interest in this part of the letter is to reinforce the fact that true faith does actually change everything. It changes who you are and how you live. True faith will be demonstrated in the kind of life a person lives. And so if you would, if you're not already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 11. You're welcome to pick up a, a pew Bible. If you're new to the Bible, uh, a tip on finding 1 John, it's faster to go from the end of the Bible than it is from the front. It's the fifth from the last book of the Bible. The second through fourth last books are one-page books, so it'll be a short journey from the back of the Bible to get to 1 John chapter 3. And here's my plan for this morning. John is talking about love. The, the subtitle in our Bibles in the ESV is love one another. And here's what we're going to look at. First, I think we're going to look at our problem with love. Second, we're going to look at how we can know love. And third, we're going to look at the glory of showing love. And so look with me as we begin at verse 11, where John begins with his main point. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John starts with the great commandment, as it's often called, the commandment to love one another as Christians. And he does so in a way that hints at where he's going. John says, this message is the one that you heard from the beginning. John isn't just talking about the beginning of his ministry. He's also not just talking about the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. He's talking about the very beginning, the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the story. Why did God create humanity in the first place? To love one another. And now, if you know anything about human history, you know that love for one another as human beings has proven somewhat difficult for some time. And you know, if you know anything about Christianity, you know that Jesus came to show us what true love is and to enable us to live lives characterized by love. And so it's not surprising that John is, of course, talking about love. And this isn't the first time he's brought up love in this letter, but until now, he hasn't really put a lot of flesh on what it means to love one another. He talks about loving one another. He talks about it being a, a testimony of true faith, testimony that someone is living in the light of life and so forth. But he doesn't talk a lot practically about what it means to love one another. And here, he's getting ready to tell us. When he begins, though, it's not exactly what we might think of. Rather than starting with a description of what love looks like, look at how John starts in verse 12 to talk about what it looks like to love one another. He says, don't be like Cain. Verse 11, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. As John is beginning to explain loving one another to us, he begins by pointing back to the first murderer in the Bible, and he says, don't be like him. And you might think, okay, it's a pretty low bar for love. Step one in loving person, don't kill them. Okay, it's a pretty low bar. I think I can do that. We're starting slow. It is a bit surprising, but I think what John is getting at here in pointing to Cain is actually quite critical and profound. So let's go back and see if we can unpack what John is doing here. The story of Cain and his brother Abel is told in Genesis chapter 4, the fourth chapter of the Bible, 
where we see that Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, have sons, Cain and Abel, and they both bring offerings to God. Cain brings the offerings of uh, uh, the fruit of the ground. That's Cain's offering. And Abel brings the firstborn of his flock. So Cain brings an offering of grain or wheat. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock. And we're told that God was pleased with Abel's offering, but not with Cain's. Because of this, Cain gets very angry. And God draws near to Cain and says, Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. It's trying to rule over you. Don't let it. But Cain doesn't listen. Instead, he seeks out his brother Abel and kills him. And now it's clear, of course, why this is a great example of what not to do when trying to love your brother. Don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. But John goes a bit further than that. He doesn't just tell us what Cain did. He tells us why Cain did it. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, the story of Cain and Abel, excuse me, the story of Cain and Abel is somewhat perplexing to me. Is it maybe, if you're familiar with the story, it may be somewhat perplexing to you as well. Because when you just read the details, it's just the first part of chapter four of Genesis. It's not exactly clear why God approves of one sacrifice over the other. Is it because, like there's one detail that's different. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock. Cain didn't bring the first fruits of his harvest. So is it that Abel brought the best of the flock and Cain didn't bring the best of the fruit of the ground? But then why would that be evil? We're never actually told, it appears, that Cain and Abel were given commands to sacrifice. And so how are they supposed to know what was good and what was bad? It's a little bit more complicated than that. So to understand what John is talking about, it's a bit perplexing. And so we need to, there's a, we need to go back further. If, we're, if we find ourselves confused with a moment in Scripture, it's always helpful to go and look backwards and see what came before. In the very beginning, before the fall, God places Adam and Eve, you're probably familiar with the story, in the Garden of Eden. And he gives them everything that they need with just one thing that they're not supposed to eat. I once heard, I think I've shared this story here uh, before, I once heard an older pastor recount being asked, I think he was on a panel somewhere, and he was asked, if you could summarize the Bible, but you just had one sentence, how would you do it? He said, I would only need two words, trust me. The whole Bible from start to finish is God saying to his people through story, after event, after teaching, after command, over and over again, the Bible repeatedly is an invitation to, his, to God's people, trust me, won't you trust me? And that starts in the very beginning. God gives Adam and Eve everything they need and says, just one command, don't eat from that tree. This is, that's an example of God. Human beings were created to be in covenant relationship. And in order to be in covenant relationship, they, they had, God gave them this word to which they could hold. And that was an example of God extending covenant relationship to Adam and Eve. And he said, trust me. But then Satan comes into the garden and invites them to trust him rather than God. That what God says isn't true and they believe him. Rather than trusting God, they trust Satan. They eat the fruit and from that point forward, their relationship with God, with one another, and with the creation itself has changed. Right away, a couple of things happen. First, death enters the world. God had said, on the day that you, in the day that you eat of this fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. And so immediately death enters the world. Their bodies were not dying and immediately they started to die. Like a branch that is chopped off of a tree, it doesn't die immediately. The, gra- the, the, the leaves still look green. There's still fruit on it, but eventually it will wither and die. Death entered the world. And every child that was born after that point, every human being who ever lived was born dead, born into this death. The next thing that happens is that God pronounces a curse upon the serpent, which comes along with a promise. God says to the serpent, because you've done all this, cursed are you above livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then God goes on. He says, he says this, hatred, enmity, I will put between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So God says to the serpent, there will be a war between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. And God says to the serpent, you are going to hurt him badly. Your offspring is going to hurt the offspring of the woman. You shall bruise his heel. But in the end, 
using that, same, that very same heel that you bruise, your head will be crushed. He's going to come and crush your head. He's going to defeat you. He is going to deal with the problem of sin and death that entered the world on account of this sin. Theologians call this the first mention of the gospel, the good news of salvation that ultimately comes to fruition in the person and work of Jesus. And the reason I zoom in on that promise is because that's the point in chapter three of the Bible that sets the stage for everything that is going to come in the rest of the Bible. The tracks have been laid here. There's these two lines, the line of the woman and the line of the serpent, the seed of promise and the seed of the evil one, the seed through which salvation would come and the seed that is going to be trying to extinguish that line. And it's a war. From that point forward, the battle starts with Adam and Eve at war with one another. It gets passed to Cain and Abel at war with one another and on it continues. Picture Pharaoh trying to extinguish the line of promise in Egypt. Fast forward to Jesus being born and King Herod trying to extinguish the king who has been born, trying to kill all the, all the firstborn sons in the land. The evil one is constantly working, waging war to try to extinguish the line of promise. But throughout this story of the Bible, God preserves this line. His plan of salvation cannot be thwarted. His promise from back here in Genesis chapter 3 will come to pass. So I'm giving helpful context for us. God goes on, though, and to the woman, he says that bearing children will come with great pain. And to the man, he says this. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat. We'll come back to that one in just a moment. The last thing that happens is also interesting. You remember what happens when Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree? Remember what they, they immediately know that they are naked and they feel ashamed. And so what do they do? They cover themselves. They go to find leaves, they sew them together to cover themselves. And then right after speaking the words of the curse, along with the promise that, that this future savior would come from the line of the woman, do you remember what God does to Adam and Eve? He gives them new clothes. They had tried to cover themselves with leaves and he gives them clothes of leather, the skins of animals. Why? Because leaves are useless. It's a symbol for us. Try as we might, we are unable to cover our sin and shame on our own. The only way for sin and shame to be covered is by the blood of a substitute provided by God. They tried to cover themselves with leaves, with the fruit of the ground, and God covers them with a blood sacrifice. And so when we fast forward to Cain and Abel and consider the question of why God was pleased with Abel's offering and not with Cain's, the answer is back there in those words that God spoke to their father, Adam. By the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread, God had said. When Cain brought an offering of grain, how did he get it? By the sweat of his brow. Cain brought the work of his own hands before God. You see, when Adam and Eve fell into shame and tried to cover themselves, God had responded by covering their guilt with an animal skin, showing them that something innocent must die in order for them to be covered. This would have been passed down to their children that the way to cover their shame before God was through blood sacrifice. And so with Cain and Abel, when we come to these two brothers, you have a scene where two brothers who are both born in sin are both in need of covering, bring offerings before the Lord. Abel, who was every bit as much in need of covering as his brother Cain, with no righteousness of his own, Abel brings an animal from his flock. He didn't grow the animal by the sweat of his brow. He simply kept it as God grew it and then offers it back to the Lord in faith receiving the covering that God had promised to his parents through this sacrifice of an innocent substitute. Cain, however, rejects this covering and instead gets to work. Rather than bringing an offering that is pleasing to God, he brought an offering that was right in his own eyes, one that he got from the ground himself. He labored over this offering, saying in essence, by my works, I can please God and this will be enough. This, friends, is religion. Rather than receiving grace by faith, religion is the life of cleaning yourself up, of doing the moral life by yourself, of trying to do enough good to balance out the bad, of being as good a person as you can. It's the life of self-reliance. And here's the problem. Here's the problem that we face even today. This self-reliance is the natural inclination of every human heart. 
my dad is not a Christian, not a Christian yet. And he told me not too long ago that he found himself talking with a man who was a Jesuit priest, a former Jesuit priest. He'd known him for some time. And then this man asked my dad, he said, what role does religion play in your life? My dad said, oh, I'm not religious at all. And the Jesuit priest just kind of shook his head and said, oh, Jamie, that's my dad's name. Oh, Jamie, you're very religious. And my dad was telling me this story and I can't remember, I need to ask him again. I can't remember exactly what he said after that, but he came to agree with this man. He realized, oh, I guess I am. And the more that I've thought about that story, I know the same. This man was completely right. My dad is not a Christian, but he's very religious. He's got a very clear picture in his mind of what's right and what's wrong. He's got a very clear picture in his mind of what the good life is, of what satisfaction looks like. And you had better believe that he does everything in his power to live in line with his vision for what life should look like. And he also holds other people to his standards in his own mind. And here's the thing. My dad is not unique. My dad is not uniquely judgmental in that way. For all of us, the natural way of our flesh is the way of self-reliance. The way of picturing for ourselves what things should be like, determining what is right in our own eyes and doing our best to live in line with it. So in our passage for today, John says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And the truth is that in our flesh, our response to that is, okay, I got this. I need to get to work. I've got to try harder. I've got to be a better person. I've got to be more loving. I've got to think of, more, think of others more than I do. And I think that's exactly why John goes straight to Cain. He says, don't be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. Cain is an ultimate example of religious self-reliance. It's tempting to read the story of Cain and think, man, I'm nothing like him. I'm never going to kill somebody. It seems like a low bar. Surely I can pass that one. If we're honest, though, the truth is that at the root, we're just like Cain. We don't like being given things. We like earning things. We like acquiring things. The name Cain, the Hebrew word Cain means acquired. We like getting things for ourselves, especially when we are in the wrong. If we're in the wrong, then we do our very best to fix things ourselves, to, to fix our mistakes, to earn forgiveness. Either we'll justify ourselves or we'll say, let me make this right. No, 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 I'm going to make this. I'm going to make this up to you. This is why the life of religion and cleaning ourselves up is every bit as attractive as it's ever been. The, the self-help industry is a $10 billion industry per year in the United States. Are you having a hard time? Here's what you need. You can do this, they say. Just like so many other people who have been able to turn their lives around, you can do the same. You just need a better roadmap to follow. You need to fix your mindset. You need to find the real you. You, you, you can do it. It sounds empowering. It sounds like just the right way to buck the system, to, to shed the layers of patriarchy and oppression that we've been living under to finally come into our own and live our lives. The reason it's so attractive is because humanity is very religious. We all know that the world is not as it should be and that we are not as we should be. We all know that we are in need of restoration. We need a renewed sense of purpose. We need a better community in which to belong. And we also know that these things are elusive, but we are born into thinking that the answer is found in ourselves that we just haven't gotten there yet, but that it's only a matter of time. And the problem is that self-reliance always backfires because you know what the life of self-reliance leads to. It leads to pride. Other people aren't doing as well as I am. Other people have the wrong perspective. It leads to judgment, elevating yourself above people. It leads to anger. Either you'll see yourself as better than those around you, elevating yourself over them in judgment, or you'll be angry and jealous of those who seem to be better than you. And this is dangerous. It led Cain to hate his brother so much that he murdered him. 
Now, if you're anything like me, again, you might think, but I would never murder someone. But then we come to verse 15, where John, referring back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And before we say, oh, well, I guess I'm not a hateful person, though, it's important to consider what we mean by hate. Often when we think about hate, we think of it as an emotion or as some, you know, visceral reaction to something that we deeply dislike. Because of that, it's easy to think that in order for, for it to be hate, it needs to look a certain way. It needs to be angry and violent. It needs to look like Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Of course, hate does sometimes find expression in anger and violence. But while hate and anger often go together, they're not necessarily connected. It is possible to be angry with someone without hating them. It's possible to hate someone without being actively angry with them. It can be helpful to think of hate in, in loc- locative terms, in, in spatial terms. Spatially speaking, hate moves away. It pushes away. It distances. That's what hatred is. That's what it does. Picture someone in middle school shoving something repulsive right in front of your nose for you to smell. You push it away. I picture my wife seeing a cockroach in our house. She's out of there. Picture a child's reaction when his bully is walking across the room towards him. Picture the Jews and the Samaritans. If you're familiar with the story, the Jews and the Samaritans were two nations that hated each other. And the Jews, in order to get to the other side of Samaria, rather than going through it, they took a much longer journey around so that they wouldn't even have to engage with them. Hate distances, pushes away. Love, on the other hand, which is the opposite of hate, of course, draws near. Picture the most delicious meal that you can think of. Picture planning a trip to see a friend who lives across the country who you haven't seen in a while, wanting to draw near to them. Picture a mother's reaction when she hears her child crying, really crying. Jesus, in his ministry, spent a lot of time addressing the effects of self-reliance and self-righteousness. He tells the story of a religious leader and a tax collector going into the temple to pray, the, Pharisee, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector is, goes in to pray and just beats his chest, saying, woe, you know, woe is me. Forgive me, Father, for I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. Doesn't even call God Father. He's humbled. The Pharisee, however, prays a very judgmental prayer. He gets up and he says, thank God that I'm not like this man. For I tithe, I I do all of these things. You see, the problem with judgmentalism elsewhere, Jesus gives this interesting picture of what being judgmental does. You may be familiar with the story of the log and the speck. Jesus describes judgmentalism as walking around with a two-by-four coming out of your face and smacking people on the head with it. He says this, why do you, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That's judgmentalism. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is describing judgmentalism in spatial terms. If you picture what it takes to take the speck out of brother's eye, that's a picture of intimate love. How do you get a speck out of someone's eye without poking their eye out? You have to get very close. You draw near. You have to be very, you exercise great care. Speak words of, trust me, trust me, I'm doing, I'm being careful. If instead you're being judgmental, then you're coming up to your brother with a two by four saying, I got this. That's what judgmentalism does. They're going to steer, you're going to hurt people right and left. You're going to keep them at arm's length and they're going to want to stay away from you so that you don't hurt them. Being self-righteous and judgmental pushes people away. Being self-righteous and judgmental is one form of hatred. So the question is, what is John getting at? What is John getting at? And talking about loving one another, pointing back to Cain. In the backdrop, you have God's words to the serpent, setting the stage for this unfolding narrative of, the, of human history. You had these two lines, the seed of the, the evil one and the seed of the promise through which salvation would come. And John's words bring that backdrop into the foreground. He writes in verse 12, Cain was of the evil one. 
implying that Abel was of the other line. Two sons, two different lines. And John is communicating something to us that I don't want us to miss. We have a problem. But the problem is not a problem that can be solved by good works. The problem is a problem of birth. It's a problem that we are born into and that we must be born out of. In the Gospel of John, throughout the Gospel of John, but first in, in, in John chapter 3, you may remember that John recounts this story that Jesus has with a leader of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is asking him, he comes to him under the cover of night because he's curious about who Jesus is and about the kingdom of God. And Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the kingdom of God. And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is trying to wrap his mind around it. He's trying to figure it out. And Jesus says, the way into the kingdom of God is not by doing better works than those around you. It's not by being less judgmental and, and being better at loving the people around you. You must be born again. This isn't a problem that you chose your way into. It's a problem that you were born into. You were born dead. Consequently, it's not a problem that you can choose your way out of. Dead people don't make choices. It's a problem that you must be born out of. The way to have life is to be born again. This is what John is pointing to in verse 14 of our passage. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. John is saying, in the flesh, so long as death is reigning, love is impossible. But if you do love the brothers, this means that you have passed out of death and into life. And the only way that that passage from death to life happens is through being born again. And so how does that happen? How does one become born again? Out of the line of the enemy into the line of blessing. Right after Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again, he tells Nicodemus how this new birth happens. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what, according to Jesus, is the door to this eternal life? What is the access point to this new birth? Belief in the son. Belief in Jesus in our passage, John ties this together for us. Also in chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And you see what John is doing. He says, as you have heard from the beginning, we should love one another. The problem with this, though, is that you have a deep-seated problem that you were unable to fix. You are going to be tempted to try to clean yourself up, to try to love people in your own way. But the more you try, the more you realize that your way of loving people keeps backfiring. The good news, though, is that a better love has appeared. The loving grace that God whispered into human history in clothing Adam and Eve with the skins of a, of a blameless animal. That whisper becomes a shout in the person of Jesus who displays his love in laying down his life for us the perfect sacrifice so that our sins could be covered once and for all. By this, John says, by this alone, we know love that he came and laid down his life for us. When we think about how God himself demonstrated both love and hate, we can't escape the spatial dimensions. To continue that for just a moment, with respect to hate, we're told, for example, that God hates sin. And what did the first sin lead to? It led to distance. Adam and Eve being cast out of God's presence. The Bible tells us that God can't stand to look upon sin. When God judges sin, his judgment will be to refine his creatures in creation by destroying sin so as to be rid of it. So that the sin is pushed away from God. Under the old covenant, being ritually clean before entering the temple was so important because God was present in the temple and because God hates sin, this is why God gave people rituals to address their sin. Sin needs to be dealt with before you can draw near to him. God hates sin, which means God stays apart from it. But with respect to love, we're told that God loves the world. And how does God demonstrate his love for the world? He comes into it. In creation, God himself was right there in the garden with Adam and Eve, walking with them. 
When sin entered the world, it fractured the relationship, causing distance. But because God so loved the world, he couldn't keep himself away. He kept showing up. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He met with his people to protect them and lead them through the wilderness. Ultimately, he had the plan to redeem the world. And when we fast forward to Jesus, we see that this redemption was the greatest cosmic act of love, of drawing near. John tells us in John chapter 1 that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God himself came into the world even knowing that he was going to be killed by those in the world. He came near Jesus, Emmanuel he is called, which means God with us. He came to be with us. He drew near. Do you see it? Rather than pushing us away and dismissing us, which God had every right to do, because he loves us, he draws near. And the only thing that we have to do is receive it by faith. We don't have to earn God's love. We receive it by faith. Don't be like Cain, for whom this grace was available, but who tried himself nonetheless. Because listen, Cain worked hard. He was acquainted with his shame. He knew how he was going to cover it. With sweat on his brow, he prepared his offering before the Lord, and in his labor, he became angry, full of hate. God, why is he holding out on me? Abel, my brother, mm, I'm going to kill him. Even when the Lord drew near to Cain after rejecting his sacrifice, God was pursuing Cain. Cain hardly noticed God because he was blinded by his self-preoccupation. This might be you, just seething in anger. Or you may be more like the prodigal son from the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, whose life in chasing fulfillment led him to despise his father, wishing him dead. But rather than attacking his father, he just left. He chose not to be with his father. But then when he realizes his shame, you remember what happens? The prodigal son comes back to his father to be a servant in his father's house. But in his shame, you can see that the prodigal son is still self-reliant. Right? He's still holding, in the guise of humility, coming before his father to be a servant, he's still pridefully holding his father at arm's length. I'm going to come near to you, but not that close. But you remember what, what, the, what this son sees when he approaches his house. When the father sees him, what does the father do? The father hikes up his robes and takes off running. He hugs him. He draws him in close, he kisses him, he throws a party for him. Brothers and sisters, friends, if in our shame we turn our eyes to God for who he is, looking to the scriptures for how they describe God for who he is, then rather than seeing a disinterested God who is holding out on us, rather than seeing a displeased father who is waiting for us to clean ourselves up, we will see a loving father who is running toward us, a God who moves heaven and earth to be close to us. In the salvation that God offers us, we see the humility of Christ. The humility of our God in coming into fallen creation, approaching his fallen creatures, knowing that they would hate him, ultimately to the point of killing him, just like Cain did with Abel. But as we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Cain tried to get rid of Abel, and we're told in Genesis 4 that Abel's blood cries out for justice. We, under the power of the evil one, tried to get rid of Jesus, but Jesus' blood cries for mercy. God rescues us from death rather than punishing us with it because he loves us. This is what love is, and it is only in believing in Jesus, which means knowing this kind of love that we can truly love those around us. Verse 16, John says, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love is derivative. It is an alien phenomenon. It is not something that comes from within ourselves. It is something that we can only enjoy and display as we receive it from God, who is love. 
without knowing the love of God, the best we can do is use people. It might look happy. It might look pleasant. But it is just a happiness that terminates on yourself. It is just a pleasure that is exploitative rather than loving and generous. In chapter 4 of 1 John, John is going to tell us we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. The only way that we can be truly freed to love others in the way that John is talking to us about, in the way that Jesus invites us to, is by knowing that we ourselves are loved in this way. Because this is true love, drawing near not only when people are nice to you, but when they hate you. True love takes the first step. True love, as Jesus demonstrates for us, takes initiative. I heard a friend of mine say recently that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who, when they go to the party, wait for others to come up to them. And then there are people who, when they go to a party, go up to others. There are people in the world who go through life looking to be loved. And there are people who go through life looking to love. You might have heard the statement, hurt people hurt people. Why is that person hurting people? Well, one answer is that hurt people hurt people. The opposite is true. Loved people love people. How is that person so ridiculously, seemingly recklessly loving? Because they must be deeply loved. For John, knowing the love of God for us through Jesus changes everything. The order of verse 16 is critical. First, God loves, God's love comes to us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And then, only then, comes love from us. We ought to lay down, thus, our lives for the brothers. It is this realization that breaks open everything else that John is talking to us about in this passage. Verse 17, John says, If anyone has the world's goods and, see his brothers, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see the language that John uses here? He, he uses the language of closing your heart against your brother, keeping your brother at arm's length, being unwilling to suffer the cost of letting him in and sharing all that you have with him. That is tantamount to hating your brother, wanting him out of your life because you see him as a threat. But... If you know that you have been loved in such a way that you have been given everything that you need, you won't be able to help beginning to draw near to your brother who is in need, inviting him into your home. You won't do it perfectly. You will get it wrong many times and it will take practice. But by God's grace, he will meet you there as you give yourself to growing in love for one another. You see, striving to love one another, not just in word or talk, but indeed in truth, in verse 18, is one of the things, verse 19, that can give our hearts reassurance before God. Look with me at verses 19 through 23. There's one thing here that I want to point out for us. It says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. There's a lot going on in these verses. But here is, I think, at least one of the things that John is saying. He's saying that you won't do this perfectly. This call to love one another, you won't do it perfectly. But when your heart condemns you for not doing it perfectly, John invites you to look at God's love for you, which is greater than your heart, which is condemning you. And be encouraged that God has worked in your heart to at least want to love your brother or sister better than you are currently. And in that moment, when you are striving to love your brother and sister, well, that is when you ask for God's help. Verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases, what pleases him. We've, when we find ourselves struggling to learn how to love the people around us, the invitation that John gives us, the invitation that, that God gives us is to ask for help. You didn't clean yourself up and I'm not leaving you alone to love your brothers and sisters well. Ask for help and I will empower. I will empower that he will be pleased to grant your request. 
You see, the question that I think John is inviting us to ask ourselves in this passage is this. What and really who are you pushing away? Who is it that you are avoiding? Who do you need God's help in loving? Is your engagement with your brothers and sisters looking more like hating them or loving them? Let's say he or she is, has really hurt you. Let's say he or she is more accomplished than you and you're intimidated. Let's say he is too needy. She talks too much. You don't have enough in common to make it worth it to you to pursue friendship with them. Seen in these terms, God's love for you and me makes it all the more amazing. Talk about needy, talkative, not a whole lot in common. Even so, God draws near. And let me remind you that love is helpfully understood, not just in an emotional sense, but with the added color of spatial terms. Love is drawing near to someone or something. For example, Jesus says to love our enemies. This doesn't mean that we get mushy-gushy over our enemies. It means that we're just to draw near to them, to seek after them, to bless them rather than cursing them. Cursing is always done from a distance. Blessing often comes in the Bible with a picture of drawing near and laying your hands on someone, getting close to them. But this even goes with your brothers and sisters, your friends, your spouses. To love means to draw near to them. And this is a helpful way to put flesh on what we mean when we say that love is not just a feeling, but a decision. It's not merely a decision not to hate someone, but a decision to draw near to them. Picture a marriage and the promise to love. This is not promising to feel loving because you will break that promise. This is the promise that, that, that means that even when you are wronged, even when you are annoyed, even when you are angry, you promise to respond by drawing near rather than pulling back. You promise to engage rather than disengage, which would be way easier. It's not always pretty. The most amazing display of love, Christ on the cross, was anything but pretty. But it was beautiful and glorious. So John says, love one another. That's the great commandment that Jesus said, I've come, won't you love one another? Why is this such a big deal? Because this is how the world will know. John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As we love one another, as we go towards one another, as people see us demonstrating self-sacrificial love rather than love based purely on, on pleasure, then they will see and know that something is different. What if rather than engaging in the vitriol that we see in the world around us, we instead drew near to one another and tried to have conversations, as difficult as that may be? What a countercultural witness would that be? But as we wonder how to do this, as we wonder how to extend the kind of love that we are being called to in this passage, to draw near to all, not just those who are kind to us, not just those who are friendly, but those who hate us, those who are angry with us, those who wrong us. As we consider this, close with verse 23. And here again, the order is so important. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. That order is so important. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means to believe not just in his name that it exists on paper, but that believe in everything that his name stands for. Everything that he displayed for us in his love for us on the cross. Availing ourselves of the, of the approval and the pleasure of God when he sees us through the person and work of Jesus. And from there, we get to love one another as he is commanded to as he is commanded to us. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, washed his disciples' feet. And you remember Peter. He, he washes, Jesus is, he, he sits down, ties a towel around his waist, and he washes his disciples' feet. Disciples' feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter says, no, 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 you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, if you don't get it, Peter. 
if you don't let me serve you, then you will not be able to serve others. If you don't let me love you first, then you have no hope in trying to love others. Brothers and sisters, so often the way that we choose is to wash our own feet and then try to go wash the feet of others. So often we try to clean ourselves up, try to justify ourselves, try to get it right over and over again when all we need to do is stop. Charles Spurgeon says, this is all you have to do. Leave off doing. This is all you have to do. Leave off doing. Let Christ do everything. When Christ has done everything, then you shall begin doing again on quite another principle, not on a view to merit, but out of gratitude to him who saved you. Sojourn, may we be a church that lives lives entirely based on gratitude of what Jesus has done for us. And watch as that turns us into, makes us into by the power of the spirit, a loving community that will push God's kingdom forward in the world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this word from 1 John chapter 3. Thank you for your spirit's presence and for preaching the better sermon. Lord, I pray that you would weave into our hearts the truth of the gospel. I pray that we would leave this morning enraptured by your love displayed for us on the cross. That while we were enemies, it wasn't when we decided to turn ourselves towards you and say, okay, we need you. It was when we were ready to kill you. That you came and drew near. And Lord, would you just help us to bask in that truth together for a moment this morning. Lord, if there's anyone here who is exhausted, running the race of self-justification, running the race of trying to please you or just trying to appease their own conscience. Lord, I pray that you would give them a clear picture of Christ on the cross, you giving yourself for them in a way that it would enable them to stop running, to receive your love, and then be enabled and transformed to truly love those around them. Lord, thank you so much for this picture. Would you use it? Turn your love for us into love through us by the power of your spirit for our good and for the good of the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.